Hey everybody, it is time for yet another Rob Observations. Welcome to the show. I am Rob Liefeld, your humble host. Excited to talk to you um, on all things comics and pop culture because it's it's coming from every corner like it's never come before. I don't know how um, you guys were, were hanging uh, this last weekend, but I got three hours of Invincible, the brand new cartoon from the mind of Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, Ryan Otley, three fine, amazingly talented young gentlemen who now have a cartoon series, an animated series on Amazon. And I was really excited to take that in, and I'm going to cover that more further into the show. Really uh, just super impressed. Could not be more impressed. Was relieved that there is just another cool, um, a cool you know, story for me, just story, but to everyone else, comic book story, um, you know, graphic novel adaptation, whatever you want to, uh, however you want to frame it in order to advance the, advance the cause of comic books at large, because I mean, really that's what it is. It's another, um, kind of, I think, I think un, uh, anticipated, not, un, not unanticipated, unexpected. That's the word I'm looking for. Unexpected. If you didn't know about Invincible, you didn't know what Invincible was when it appeared on your Amazon Prime menu. Maybe you'd seen a trailer, but here it is. It's arrived. It's top-notch. It's A-plus. It's quality, and it's alongside my now my Friday menu of whatever Marvel or Disney Plus show I'm getting, or Star Wars, I'm thinking. You know, um, right now we're in the Marvel zone as the Star Wars stuff is still ramping up, but we've got Winter Soldier, Falcon, which I enjoyed thoroughly, which is now... Uh, dropping for the next, you know, I think five more weeks, and uh, is it four more weeks? And 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 then subsequently we have Invincible running its incredible course, and then Warner Brothers is giving us all of these different genre sci-fi comic book themed, st- uh, uh, you know, products, filmed entertainment. Uh, obviously, we had Zack Snyder's Justice League, and then you know we're getting Kong versus Godzilla, which I I am so amped about. Uh, coming this very week. It's not on a Friday, but it's a midweek drop. We're getting Mortal Kombat, okay? I mean, you, you guys saw the Suicide Squad uh, advertisement. I mean, the world is comic books right now. And and if you didn't know what an Invincible was, you do now. It's available. I highly recommend you check it out. I'm going to circle back to that um, uh, later in the show as we kind of dwell on all these different pop culture elements. But good God, you know, it, it, it's, 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 is it, is it too early or is it too late to think, man, can all of this, can all of this be, you know, can, can we sustain all this? Can we truly sustain all this? I think the answer is yes. I'm going to give you a dirty little secret about Rob Liefeld. This is the dirtiest secret I could ever tell you. And uh, on, <laughs> on the weekends, I go back in time. I do. I, try, I time travel. I am... A time travel, look out, Kang the Conqueror, look out, Immortus. Um, I go into a time travel uh, existence starting very early on Saturday mornings. And you got to understand, my entire life I haven't been able to sleep in. If you're out there, Kenneth Pledger, uh, he was my uh, really good buddy growing up in in uh, in elementary and, and junior high. And our, our moms were best friends. Shirley Pledger, Patty Liefeld, best friends. Um, my his oldest brother was the same age as my sister, and then there was a seven year gap, and then 
there was us. And Kenneth and Robbie were together a lot. Ken was the cool kid. I was the nerd kid. Um, Ken looked like every teen idol that was that ever existed, and I did not. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But the great thing is, Ken had a waterbed, one of the first waterbeds I ever experienced in the 70s. He was living a posh life. He had kind of a, he had nicer taste. He had nicer taste. His, his parents were um, better off. They were, they were, every, every, every family has it. You have, you have a, a family who is um, maybe a little more, as my mother would say, well-to-do than you. Okay, going to some 1960s, 1970s speak there. Well-to-do. They were a little more well-to-do. I love that. I need to I need to put that in a project, okay? So so uh the pledgers and they were the sweetest people. Sweetest, greatest people. They had a big giant pool. We would swim there all summer long. They had the sweet killer kind of designer two-story house and Ken had a waterbed. And uh he also slept in till 12 or 1 every Saturday or Sunday. Like there was no waking that kid you could not skateboard or bike ride or get dropped off near his house and find him awake. His mom was not going to wake him up. You know, he got that deep slumber. Why am I telling you this? Because I am the reverse of that. If if there are any of you who suddenly you're like, why am I awake at 5.45 a.m. every morning for the rest of my life? That's me. I am an early riser. I've always been an early riser. I enjoy the early rising of things. I enjoy the sunrise. I, lo- I love the way the sky looks. I love the way the, 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 the sun peers up over the hill nearby our house. And uh, I just, I'm a morning guy. I'm a morning guy. The whole Ken Pledger uh, example was to explain, it was to share with you that there are many of you who are not morning people and hats off to you. My, my kids, as, I've, as, as they get older, I have learned to watch as they have friends who sleep in, you know, who can't who can't hang out on Saturdays until after two o'clock because they don't even wake up till twelve thirty or one, right? So, so it's it's fun. We we are a family of early risers. I myself am an early, early riser. What does this have to do with me time traveling on the weekends? Well, I'll tell you. There are a number of different stations that show on the weekends. Well, they, they Monday through Friday they exist as well. I only interface with them on Saturday and Sunday, but. On Saturday and Sunday, I go back in time and I watch all cowboy shows, okay? And and you know who was watching cowboy shows too? His name's John Favreau because every episode of The Mandalorian is a Western that you've seen that John saw, that I saw, retooled um, with just sci-fi sensibilities. There, there's cowboys, there's Indians, there's bounty hunters, there's saloons, the Wild West the Mandalorian is 100% a jam up of Rifleman, alias Smith and Jones, Bonanza, Big Valley, uh, <laughs> The Virginian, all of these shows. And yes, I interact with all of them. How the West was won. Okay. James Arness is a name that you are not likely going to um, recognize unless you're around my age. But oh my gosh, Gunsmoke was on for 20 seasons. You guys, you couldn't miss it. When I was a kid, it was on its tail end. It was in color. But when you watch Gunsmoke, you'll see Burt Reynolds. He was on like five seasons. When you see Alias Smith and Jones, you'll see Sally Field. The great thing about these Westerns is that they take you back. And I am definitely back nine years old, seven years old, 
because in the early 70s, those were the shows on in prime time. That was your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday, your Friday night entertainment, okay? Alias Smith & Jones, uh, Bonanza, Big Valley, you know, uh, the aforementioned Gunsmoke Rifleman with Chuck Connors. You're like, Liefeld, you're dating yourself. You're damn right I am. These are fantastic. And again, the, the cowboy movies of my youth. I mean, you know, the outlaw Josie Wales, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of the Clint Eastwood library of cowboy films, all the Sergio Leone, you know, that, that this, this is, uh, oh my gosh, I just, cowboys was the landscape. And you've heard, um, you know, guys like Steven Spielberg talk about comic books and comic book movies and maybe Martin Scorsese and they're not as, as kind to them. But I truly believe that as I started with, with propositioning this before I told you how I time traveled on the weekends, I was saying, is it too early? Is it too late to say that? Can we take all this superhero stuff? I think we can. I actually think we can. There are entire channels, programming blocks only around uh, old Westerns and not even old Westerns. You guys, if you remember the young writers in the early nineties, which starred Josh Brolin, my kids were walking through the other day and they're like, is that Josh Brolin, Dad? And it's like, there's Josh in his, maybe maybe he's 2021. 20, Shortly after Goonies booked a, a Young Writers show. It ran for two and a half seasons, I think. Um, I am now watching that as well. One o'clock, two o'clock, Saturday afternoons. It's got, um, uh, I forget which Baldwin brother is in it. It's not Alec. It's, it's, I think it's Stephen Baldwin. Stephen Baldwin is the, uh, is the other uh, lead. But I mean, it's got a lot of familiar faces. Really cool uh, uh, story of the of the of the Pony Express, fictionalized all the way through. Probably a few parameters of reality that they go through. But um, Josh and Baldwin are the big stars. But again, this is back in the '90s, and and that was cashing in on the um, Young Guns craze that Emilio Estevez, Estevez and Kiefer Sutherland and Charlie Sheen started with their Young Guns movies. Young Guns Two is, uh, in my opinion, superior to Young Guns One, but that's just me. If you watch Young Guns, look for the Tom Cruise cameo. Uh, uh, yes, I, I just told you there's a Tom Cruise cameo. If you don't know what it is, I'm not going to tell you today, but if maybe if you interact with me online, uh, I can show it to you. Uh, he pointed it out in the 90s that he was in Young Guns, and obviously because he was friends with all those guys. So so look, Cowboys made a comeback in the 90s. Obviously, Kevin Costner did not want to let the cowboy genre go. Neither, of course, did Clint Eastwood. That was his bread and butter for so long, which is... Why you got something as brilliant as Unforgiven, but whether it's open range, going back to uh, Wyatt Earp, or obviously you know the 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 epic that is Dances with Wolves uh, and Silverado. I mean, I mean Kevin Costner is a cowboy guy. He is an absolute one hundred percent you know tried and true cowboy aficionado. He gives you cowboy western entertainment. So it's never gone away. I don't believe I believe like comic books. Comic books are not going to go away, but we are definitely hitting an apex where there is a lot of this stuff. And I think Invincible is great because it's 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 coming at it from the animated space, which we don't have near enough. Uh, the last great animated show that I watched in in terms of American superheroes reflecting the American superhero comic book scene is Young Justice. It was funny because my kids bonded with that too. It was fun uh, a few years ago. My 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 youngest son Chase was really into Young Justice, and it was funny because. Because of Young Justice, he he was able to enjoy Justice League, the Zack Snyder Justice League movie, that much more because stuff like Martian Manhunter was made aware to him through Young Justice. So we've got Invincible, we've got Winter Soldier, we've got all this other great stuff, Suicide Squad, 
you know, I guess The Rock was announcing Black Adam on Madison, you know, uh, uh, in, in uh, whatever, New York, in the at, <laughs> downtown, you know, in downtown New York last night. I, I am fritzing and blitzing, but he was, uh, Times Square, Times Square, he, he had the big, the big, uh, big giant screen announcement where he gave the date to Black Adam. I gotta be honest, I'm excited by Pierce Brosnan being Dr. Fate. I think that's the, like, maybe one of the best castings of the last couple of years. But Black Adam's got to work. It's got some work to win me over, I think. I, 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 I'm I'm uh, not negating it whatsoever, and I'll be there to see it regardless because I see everything. So it's got my money. Um, I'm just, you know, I need, I need a little more. And, and you know what I think the thing is? And it's one of the things that I kind of... Um, I, after I told you, after they lowered the troll bridge, which they did, and they trolled us on WandaVision with Evan Peters and all the uh, misled, all the misleading, all the deliberate misleading. It wasn't up to us. They misled us. That's why they didn't get the, they didn't stick the landing on that show. Uh, after that, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, it really was a reminder not to try and look too far ahead. I think Black Adam, I just can't even imagine that it's that, that close, like it's that far away. It's not close. In 2022, I can't even I can't even count that high, okay? And people were, were cracking on me a couple of years ago when I said the Deadpool 3, if it happens at the time, if it happens, because there was a lot of negotiations to do to, 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 to do as far as getting that going. I, I'm telling you, that movie is probably a 2023 movie. People were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, Ryan Reynolds is one of the most in-demand leading men in Hollywood, and he had booked about six movies prior to Deadpool 3 being announced, six of which I think two he has performed in. And so now he has all these other fulfillments, uh, you know, contractual fulfillments to the studios and the projects that he committed to prior to Deadpool 3. And Deadpool 3, maybe it can jump in the middle there. Maybe maybe one of the others, uh, the, de- the development on one of the other movies hits the skids, takes a pause, and Ryan can pivot and go right into Deadpool 3. But I just, again, 2023 is kind of like, to me, the earliest I could see it coming out, especially given that The Rock is about to film Black Adam, and that's not coming out till July of 2022, per his announcement that he made last night. So, I mean, we're getting no small uh, shortage of these this comic book material, and it's exciting. And, you know, the great thing is if it's making you drive, if it's driving you back to comic books, and, and my comic book friends say that, that, that so much... Uh, the one thing that the Marvel shows are doing, start with WandaVision, it's continuing with Winter Soldier, Falcon, is that, uh, you know, they're driving people back to comic books, comic book stores, the source material. Invincible is going to make you do the same absolutely 100%. And, and that is the benefit of these, which I've kind of view as really entertaining commercials for the source material. And you know, the only reason we're here is because I love to talk about the source material. Because I am all about the comics. Last week I spoke about passion. I spoke about the passion that you bring to the craft of comic books and the passion that I bring, which is why I'm still doing interiors. And you're like, well, that's a weird barometer. It's not actually. Think about all the guys who you're not getting interior art from. You don't get interior art from Todd McFarlane. You don't get interior art from Jim Lee. You don't get interior art from Mark Silvestri. You don't get interior art from Ron Lim. You don't get interior art from, you know, right now, Larry Stroman. And I'm just, I'm trying to stay with like the really popular guys who, who who you were very fond of and bought copious amounts of their work. Are we getting interiors from Mark Teixeira? He's great. Uh, many people called him Tex, so it's T-E-X-E-R-I-A, Teixeira. He did Ghost Rider, he did Wolverine. 
I mean, you're just not getting uh, interior art from so many of these guys who, guys, quite frankly, I enjoy the work. It pushes me. I would love a Mark Silvestri comic book more than, you know, life itself. You, you, my, my, my undying respect, admiration for him is, un, is, is completely, 100% well-known on this podcast. I love seeing his work. When he does a cover or whatever it is, I buy it. That's how hungry I am for a Mark Silvestri drawing. Now, I can live without a lot of the different variant covers by some of my other peers because it's just not that interesting to me. If, if I have one Jim Lee Batman drawing, I have all of them. That's my take on the matter. I, I, I mean, he's probably going to be poised on top of a building looking left, right, center. Maybe a gargoyle is nearby. I get it. It's a popular image. Turning the camera on it every few inches is, is definitely the way to go. Um, Todd, same with Spawn. Is he on a stoop? Does, is there a gargoyle? Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I've seen it. It's the challenge I've had doing these. I'm doing these 30 Deadpool covers for Marvel, and I keep trying to make them slightly different. Uh, I invoked a, some humor on a recent one. I, I, I tried to, um, you know, pivot and, and 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 maybe give a variation, even though I know a lot of people do. Like I said, the reason that the Batman gargoyle style image, whether it's done by Jim or Dave Finch or or someone else. Or Alex Ross, why it's so popular? It's just a, it's just a popular image, and people can't get enough of that. So that's why you keep getting so much more of it. I mean, I dare Star Wars to make a movie without lightsabers. They wouldn't because we love lightsabers, which is why even Ben Affleck gets that best ever dramatic upshot on the gargoyle in the uh, Justice League Zack Snyder. It, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. That's amazing. And again, where does it all start? It starts with Frank Miller. Come on, that's the guy. That, that, that reimagined the Batman that we all know and love today. And, uh, but passion, you know, Frank Miller's given me, given me interiors, mini comics that go with his Dark Knight 3. He gave me another 300 sequel. This is a guy that's hungry. Do you think Frank Miller really needs to draw another comic? He does not. So I just want to reinforce what I was trying to say with the passion of the comics is, you know, you can't fake it. It's, it's there or it's not there. And it's, and it's either there in the work um, or it's not there in the work. I mean, it, it, sometimes when I mean it's not there in the work, it just doesn't exist. There is no work. Okay. So, so, you know, hitting home hard, what I was trying to get at is if it's in your blood, it's in your blood and you have to do it above all else. And, and I mean, so, so when I time travel and I go back in time and I watch Westerns that I watched when I was seven and eight and nine and 10, um, what I'm doing is I'm drawing, as I've told you, I, I, I draw, uh, generally to things that I have um, uh, good recollection of. So I don't have to be up and watching it at all times. I have seen most episodes of Big Valley. I have seen most episodes of, oh my gosh, I've seen every episode of Alias Smith & Jones, which was a uh, a knockoff, a really great knockoff of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, I, watch, I watch that with great regularity. I have the box set. I got the box set about 10, 15 years ago. So I've seen them all, but I like seeing them broadcast to me on Saturday morning. And I draw. This week I drew some independent pages that you don't know about. I drew some Archie Comics Crusaders. I drew some Snake Eyes and I drew some Marvel stuff. And I did all of that to the background of a mix of Big Valley, Gunsmoke, Alias Smith & Jones, The Virginian, and The Young Riders. Okay. And I'm mixing it up, man. I'm mixing it up, but it's fun. It's fun. I, I, I asked my daughter, I said, sweet daughter, would you happen to know the name of this show that I love so much? And I'm up, standing there looking at Pete Duell, 
and Ben Murphy, who played Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry in Alias Smith and Jones. And uh, she said, it's cowboy, it's dad's cowboy Saturday weekend cowboy shows. And I go, is that what you know it as? And she goes, yes, we all know that it's weekend cowboy for dad. Dad's a weekend Dad's weekend cowboy show. So I thought that was hysterical. That was that was something I learned just this last weekend when I wanted I asked if she would by chance know any of the names of any of these shows that are coming across the screen. Like so many of you and your families, we have multiple screens in multiple rooms. I I, I start in the morning out drawing and watching these shows in a living room until I finally go to my bedroom, which I have a giant life I mean mega sized beanbag that I sit with my lap board. I've told you guys several times I draw with a lap board. So do I envision that someday there'll be two or three dedicated superhero comic book channels? Absolutely. We'll probably be there within the next two years. Uh, there will be enough reruns of Wonder Woman, all of the different Superman's um, incarnations from George Reeves all the way up through the the Dean Cain, the, 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 I mean the current series all the way through, the syndicated uh, Superboy shows that Mike Carlin thought he was going to be a big Hollywood player flying down to Florida and watching them produce those back when I was doing Hawk and Dove because that really happened. The um, All of those shows, uh, the, 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 there's some great, ridiculous, like superhero roasts. It was called The Roast of the Superheroes, The Challenge of the Superheroes on NBC when I was a kid that, that I just was excited because in the newspaper ad, it had more Drew. More Drew, my favorite villain of the Legion of Superheroes, was, I'm like, oh, whoa, that's a deep cut. You see More Drew in 1979 in a TV Guide ad, and he's standing next to a Hawkman and a Hawk Girl and a Green Lantern, and you're like, I'm watching that, man. Now, it was played for comedy. My heart kind of sank, but I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll just play it through, because at that time, again, you lock in and go, I'm just going to record the visuals. I'm going to see how this looks. So do I think there could be a dedicated superhero channel? The superhero channel. The, the, the... The Super Guy channel, because I don't know what's copyrighted, I don't know what's trademarked, but uh, I really do believe that that we are that close to that happening, and and you know that'll give us something else to be passionate about. But that's when I'm drawing on the weekends in the mornings. It's to cowboy shows, and they're familiar cowboy reruns, and that's where I'm cranking. Why am I drawing on a weekend? Because I have to. Because I I overcommitted. I'm always overcommitted. I take on a lot of work so that I can stay engaged. I like juggling several balls at one time. And that is, again, speaks to the passion of what I do, why I do it. Um, I would love to say I do it for you. The byproduct is that you enjoy it. But I think the people who are passionate about it do, them, do it for themselves because they don't know what to do with themselves otherwise. And that is kind of where I am coming from when I you know, approach my own craft and, and, and my own passion. And, you know, doing Snake Eyes G.I. Joe was definitely the the highlight of the last decade for me. It was a bucket list item. Doing these Crusaders, Archie Comics, The Shield, Jaguar, Comet, all of these guys. Discovering some of the fringe characters I didn't know existed within the Archie Hero, you know, universe. That is that is such a thrill for me. I, I, I bought those comics. I love those comics. Um, I never in a million years thought I could portray those characters uh and, what, and, and you know, the reason I like them is because they're visually very excited. And the reason a lot of people who've never heard of them are excited about picking it up is because they see the drawings that I'm doing of them. But really, I'm just drawing these great designs, these really great designs, um, in a basically a modern commercial style. Which pivots me a little to one of the things I wanted to touch on today was styles. <clears throat> and what brought me to styles was... 
this new book out called Rock on the Water. And Rock on the Water is an examination of a year that, 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 that this author deems as extremely important in pop culture. Rock on the Water is the name of the book, and it covers the year of 1974, a year that this author professes that is the most important, <clears throat> is, uh, is, is one of the most important uh, uh, influential years in the history of pop culture, and it was also focusing on everything that went down in Los Angeles in that year. And the... Uh, the author, um, who who I, I I can't mention the book without giving you the author. So the author is Ronald Brownstein. Rock me on the water, which he based on a Jackson Brown song. You're saying who's Jackson Brown, and that's that is another reflection of just how freaking old I am. In 1974, I know sounds like stagecoaches um, and petticoats. You're like, what's a petticoat? It sounds like old stuff to you guys, but it really resonates with me because this this year I, I was seven years old. But because I had a, a sister who was seven years older and she was my primary ride to the library, to the market, to getting out of town, we'd follow our parents out to Palm Springs for a weekend out in the desert in a, in a, in a you know, apartment or, or someplace we rented. Um, and, and I would be in, in the car with my sister for two hours and that's where I would get so much of my exposure to the music of that time. And so the music of that time, the TV of that time, the movies of the time are so resonant with me. I mean, I, I, I remember watching, I've already mentioned Alias Smith and Jones, the the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid knockoff show that went for three seasons. I mention that because those seasons are 71, 72, and 73, and I remember them like they were yesterday because you remember five, six, seven. You remember what you were watching with your mom and dad. You do. I, I saw Nixon resign, you know, and, and, and Gerald Ford take over. That, those, are my, those are my memories. Those are my childhood memories, and they were on TV. I was part of that early TV generation. But um, Rock Me on the Water... Uh, it, it, it again supposes that in Los Angeles, 1974 exerted more influence. Listen to this. 1974, Los Angeles exerted more influence over pop culture than any other city in America. Los Angeles that year, in fact, dominated pop culture more than it ever had before or would ever again. Working in film, recording, and television studios around Sunset Boulevard, living in Brentwood and Beverly Hills, or amid the flickering lights of the Hollywood Hills, a cluster of transformative talents produced an explosion in pop culture, which reflected the demographic, social, and cultural realities of a changing America, at a time when Richard Nixon won two presidential elections with a message of backlash against the social changes unleashed by the 60s. Popular culture was ahead of politics in protecting what America would eventually become the early 1970s in L.A. was the time and place where conservatives definitely, definitively lost the battle to the control of pop culture. What I just tell you, all the stuff that I saw on TV, okay? Rock Me on the Water traces the confluence of movies, music, television, and politics in L.A. month by month through the transformative magical year of 1974. Ronald Brownstein reveals how through 1974... A confrontation between a massive younger generation intent on change and a political order rooted in the status quo occurred. Today, we are again witnessing a generational cultural divide. Brownstein shows how the voices resistant to change may win the political battle for a time, but they cannot hold back the future. And uh, that is the, um, the, the 
the framework of this rock me on the water. And 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 I, I watched a few interviews with Ronald Brownstein this weekend, and he talked about how he and he he's like in 1974, you know, Steven Spielberg is shooting the quint the the the, the quintessential blockbuster that will change Hollywood for generations to come in Jaws. This the you know Richard Dreyfus, you know, uh, that the, the, they are they are out on the water with a broken shark. Spielberg is literally navigating the waters of how to turn this best-selling book, um, Jaws, into the summer blockbuster of 1975, and he's doing it in 1974. It's funny, whenever I see a movie come out, I always think that it was shot a year before. So I always go, okay, you know, like you're seeing Deadpool 2 in 2018. I was on the set of Deadpool 2 in 2017. You always get it a year after it was complete. You know, when we see Suicide Squad in August, James Gunn has even talked about how, I mean, that was shot in 2019 prior to the shutdown. So some of this stuff now we're getting extra burps, extra, you know, uh, uh, gaps in the in, in time in regards to when it actually shows up for us. And I always think about that. I always think about, well, when you look at Star Wars and you look at Harrison Ford, and Mark Hamill and Princess Leia, they're shooting that in 1976. That's what was going on in the world in 1976 prior to it being released in 77. And it makes it even more impressive that the advancements in technology and George's vision, you can push it back even a year further. And then years further than that, given the screenplay and everything else that he had going on. Well, Steven Spielberg, he cites, is 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 in 1974 making the, the catalyst of a complete change-up in Hollywood that will change forever how the studios operate, how theaters operate. That is on the backs of a young man named Steven Spielberg. One year later, obviously after the release of Jaws, uh, uh, George Lucas is in the sands, uh, you know, uh, 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 overseas, in the desert, making Star Wars. And and this was just, I mean, this 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 those two guys rolled it downhill and absolutely transformed theater going, movie viewing, distribution, and the art of directing, producing movies forever. We're still living in that time. That is how big of a giant uh, change they affected. He also supposes um, that, that, uh, that, that the music of the time, which he's not incorrect, but the music of the time, he, 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 Ronald Brownstein of Rock Me on the Water talks about how, trans, how, how, how collaborative it was. How absolutely so! So the the book is based on, you know, um, the book is based on the or is, is is taken from like I said a Jackson Brown song. Now Jackson Brown is Orange County, one of Orange County, along with James Cameron, along with Kevin Costner, are our proudest exports. Jackson Brown went to my wife's high school, Sunny Hills High School. He is by far and away their most famous graduate. Jackson Brown attended Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, and. Uh, he immediately shot to stardom shortly after, you know, in, in his youth, writing these amazing stories. And when I was in high school, Jackson Brown had written um, one of his biggest hits, which was used in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, Gotta Be Somebody's Baby. It's such a catchy song. I listen to it repeatedly all year long, every year of the rest of my life and half. Um but the 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 what most people don't don't understand is that because I'm such an Eagles fan and, and truthfully uh, 
I'm unzipping my sweatshirt. I am wearing an Eagles shirt. They have many, many, many Eagles shirts. They're my favorite band of all space and time. There's many reasons that, that go into that. But without the catchy songs and the favorite songs of my youth and Don Henley and Glenn Fry's Amazing Voices, you know, it, they aren't my favorite band of all time. I can listen, to, especially when we drive to Vegas or for, for our kids' tournaments or soccer matches and the ways that we used to do. My kids knew that they were getting locked into poor kids or, or, or great kids, whichever way you, you view them. In, in the fact that they had to listen to it, uh, we started every journey at least with a two-hour, uh, you know, nonstop playing of the all of my Eagles music. And what you don't know is, uh, take it easy, the first hit for the Eagles, the very first hit that the Eagles ever had was was a uh, Jackson Brown song. He wrote it. And and then he and Glenn Fry uh, retooled it, added some stuff. And and Jackson Brown didn't make it his own hit. He made it an, an Eagles hit. And and Glenn Fry sings, you know, I was standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona. And, and they were off to the races. And the Eagles had one of their biggest, most, um, most, uh, most expansive, incredible... Uh, uh, successful hits. It was their first hit. It put them on the map. It charted them. It it it, it made them resonant. And and if you've watched as I have, all of these different documentaries: Laurel Canyon, Sounds of the Canyon, the Eagles documentary, uh, Linda Ronstadt, huge voice of the '70s, early '80s, Jackson Brown. Um, again, jo- Jackson Brown, Doctor My Eyes. I mean, he had he has. If you were to find leave this and go listen to some Jackson Brown music, you would not be. Um, you would not regret it. His hits are are absolutely amazing. But like I said, he wrote and just gave to. Obviously, he got some participation. You're not going to just give a song back in those days. And they shared a manager. The Eagles shared a manager uh, with Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown was actually the bigger hit of the time. And um, and Jackson Brown just went ahead and gave this uh, this song to the Eagles, which put them on the map and, and changed the course of the Eagles' And, and, and their successful career. And, and and Linda Ronstadt and Jackson Brown and the Eagles and the Mamas and the Papas and they're all jamming and they're all sharing and they're all sitting in each other's bedrooms. They're all playing music. And uh, and, and this this culminated in, again, this year of, uh, of 1974. Again, um, Doctor My Eyes, Rock Me on the Water. These, these are the early awesome hits of, of Jackson Brown. Again, I'm just leaning into um, the fact that you may never have heard of this amazing... Orange County export before. And he, when the Eagles, when Glenn Fry unfortunately passed away, Jackson Brown was one of the guys considered to go back in and be inserted into the uh, the band. They they opted instead, you know, to go with, with Glenn's um, youngest son. And trust me, I saw the first night that he performed with them at Dodger Stadium. It was magic. It was fantastic. I've seen them multiple times since. It, it, it It's, uh, I wish, I wish, I do, I, I did regret that Jackson Brown, because I'm such a fan and it would have been great to see him join up, but he didn't. The bottom line is the collaboration. TV in 1974, All in the Family. Social boundaries just kicked down every week with Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker was a transformational uh, TV character figure. He factored into all of the uh, dialogues about television, what was offensive, what wasn't offensive. He in his himself, I as a kid knew Archie Bunker's an offensive guy. He offended veterans. He offended blacks, Latinos, um, Asians. I, I don't know how that 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 show would ever fly nowadays. I know they did a, a, a modern rereading of some of the more socially resonant episodes um, um, last last or two years ago on ABC, where they got like Jamie Foxx um, 
and, and some of the others and Woody Harrelson to to actually uh, you know embody the characters of the Jeffersons and 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 uh, Archie Bunker on the All in the Family you know redo. But the bottom line is that that uh, under no circumstances would that fly <clears throat> in today's uh, media market, and 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 yet it flew then, and it was the number one best-selling, uh, best, most watched television show in a, in a block of really successful television shows along with Mary Tyler Moore and MASH. And it was a block on Sunday nights, Saturday nights that was seen as unstoppable. Um, Sunday night, Saturday night, my, my memory is, is failing me, but, but that weekend television was 1974, that block of airspace. Now you've got television, you've got Steven Spielberg, you've got the Eagles, you've got Jackson Brown, you've got Linda Ronson, you've got all this killer music. And what Ronald Brownstein is saying is this was a was a year that changed forever. Uh, you know, pop culture as we know it. It's interesting to listen to those arguments because where am I going with all this? The place I'm going with this is for me, that year, when I think about it, when all the passions were running high, in the world of comic books, and we're still dining out on these fumes, is 1992. 1992, and we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of Image Comics. When I hear about collaboration, when I hear about visionary talent, when I hear about um, you know uh, best-selling, record-breaking numbers on 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 television shows, I think of comic books, and I think of the camaraderie and 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 the uh, the, the shared creativity that the image guys had that we, that we just came together in the same way. There was kind of like Laurel Canyon. I've told you it was the West coast. We all, uh, uh, found each other, uh, Todd being in Vancouver, uh, and, and, and coming out to LA a lot and doing a lot of West coast, you know, uh, uh, convention and store appearances, Eric Larson in, in, in the Bay area up, up in somewhere in Oakland, San Francisco, he bounced between both. Uh, Jim Lee had moved to, uh, San Francisco, and then moved to San Diego. Mark Silvestri's in Los Angeles. Jim Valentino's in Orange County. Rob Liefeld is in Orange County. Wills Portacio is in San Diego with Jim Lee. We were this West Coast-based group, and when we got together, we wanted to pick each other's brains, and we were looking at each other's work and, and checking out each other's influence, and I've covered this before, but I can't cover it enough because it changed the industry as we know it today, you can mark it back to 1992. If you want to go back one year and say, well, in the same manner that Brownstein uh, gives it, gives gives the actual date to 1974 when all of this was happening prior to it being released, then you could go 1991 and you wouldn't be wrong. You would not be wrong because, uh, because uh, again, that's when everything was coming to place. 1991 <laughs> is when I decided like, I'm not doing that, you know, uh, I, I'm not continuing down this path even further back 1990. I'm not going to participate in the extinction agenda. This is a, 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 a showcase for Jim Lee, which as much as I admire him, he's a rival, he's a competitor. We're both going after the same dollar. And, uh, and I decided that I would tap out on that knowing that that was a showcase for him. And, and, and I would uh, in, invest in my own advancement by focusing on New Mutants 98, 99, and 100 instead. And, and that, those are choices that I made then to, to kind of gear towards what was coming. I knew I had to take over. And I use myself, you guys, because obviously I'm my own best example. I am not a stranger to success. My success was not an accident. 
Todd McFarlane's success was not an accident, but his success is his success, and he can talk to you about it and the moves he made. And 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 the thing that I think we like talking to you about the most is it's not just how we draw, although there's a lot of thought that goes into that. It's not just you know where we draw, which clearly matters here. It's also what we're drawing and when we're drawing it. And all of those factors um, play into the mutual success that we all achieved. And by doing so, by becoming one, by uniting ourselves, we changed the entire industry. We changed it with computer color. We changed it with distribution. Um, there is a horrible book. I am happy to mention it. It is an absolute piece of garbage about Marvel Comics. Um, the author is Sean Howe. And he uh, wrote a book about Marvel and conveniently, conveniently, did not mention, did not, did not, he mentions, he did not speak to directly myself, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, any of us. He did not speak to us he only recounted things that happened that we were a part of through the eyes of the bitter men who were left behind. And 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 why were they bitter? Because we left them behind. Why were they bitter? Because we left them behind. Because what we were doing together was very influential. And now we were going to do it together away from them. And that was able to hold and be substantial and be... Uh, extremely successful for a period of time. Uh, I think the, ex the the Image Comics experiment had a great two and a half years until everyone was fraying from, um, you know, it's like my mom. Our, our moms, they give us great advice. My mom told me, don't hang around your friends, whether it was Kenneth, whether it was Nathan or Paul, don't hang around them too much. You'll get sick of each other. Whose mom did not give them that great piece of advice? Don't hang around X, Y, and Z. You'll get sick of each other. And, and, and it's, it's always good to have a break and not overexpose yourself. And I have taken that, um, as much as I can or into my, um, you know, into my career as well. There are buddies of mine who I would like to talk to every single day, but I know I can't. It's too much. I talk too much. I, I did a podcast to kind of exit away from all of the, uh, from all of the, <laughs> all of the crazy talking that I do where I am bugging other people. Okay. So, so, so my, uh, you know, my, my, my mom's advice to, to, you know, d d don't, don't hang around your friends too much. You'll get sick of each other or also let's, let's investigate it. They'll get sick of you. And I'm always aware that, you know, too much of me is, is definitely maybe not, not, not a good thing. And so, so, which is why I try and limit the, the, the podcast to twice a week and, and roughly an hour each session. But, you know, I did used to, uh. I remember one time I talked Todd when I, I, I love to tap Todd's knowledge. At that point, he was much more, um, you know, what do you say? Uh, uh, he was much more advanced in the business than I was. Uh, people forget Todd's early work was in like 84, 83. He was drawing issues of Coyote, issues of Infinity Inc. I mean, uh, he had been around and he had logged some pages. He did issues of G.I. Joe. He did a... If, if you're not aware that he did an issue of, of Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, did I say Spitfire and the Troubleshooters? I did. It's a new universe book. It's a great issue. I believe Bob McLeod inked it. It's fun. I remember really digging it. I love Todd's stuff. 
Todd was very, um, his work was very noticeable, as I mentioned several times on Infinity Inc. And on Coyote, where he was doing some backup features, uh, I, I, his, his work was also very noticeable. And, and because of the layouts that he did, he was definitely trying to make his mark where his maybe his art wasn't as refined as much. And they were giving him to heavy finishers. His early work is um, a couple jobs is by a gentleman named Tony Dezuniga. And he was one of the really talented um, Filipino artists under the employ of both Marvel and DC. And when those guys, Alfredo Alcala, Rudy Nabriz, uh, Tony Dezuniga, these guys were brought in to generally do heavy finishes over you. They were very polished draftsmen, illustrators. They could utilize um, gray wash, which is basically, you know, a dilution of the ink into into a gray uh, palette of covers to, to make a black and white uh, looking, um, you know, variation of tones. They, 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 could, they, they, they could ink and brush in pen. They, they were very lavish in their rendering and their strokes. And so when you were getting inked by them, they were definitely being told to give a heavy hand to you. I never saw a, Terry, a Tony Dezuniga lighthearted approach. I would see, uh, I would definitely see Tony um, Barry, artist that I loved, named John Byrne in 1978. So there's, there's no way he is not going to overpower you out of the gate. This is prime John Byrne, Marvel team-up, Spider-Man, Thor. John Byrne cites it as one of his, of his favorite jobs, and I can see why, because Tony and John together blended to look as much like Neil Adams as John Byrne had ever looked. And John what, has, has said one of his big influences, one of the people that he aspired to be was, was Neil Adams. So this was like a dream come true for him that he was united with, uh, with Tony Dezuniga on this job, especially given that the living monolith who they're, who they're battling is a Neil Adams villain from the X-Men run, uh, or Neil was more famous, was Neil's version of the living monolith was the most popular portrayal. And, and so I think John was trying to emulate that, so it was perfect that, that they matched. But when Tony was inking Todd early on, I think that the bottom line is Todd's layouts and page design were really um, driving home the message for him uh, 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 of just how talented he was. Because while his drawing was going to improve and he was giving it time to improve, he wanted you to know that he had something else to offer with, with cool layout and page design. And it, and it was great. And so by the time I, I got, you know, to know Todd, I knew Todd had been, you know, he, he was doing comics, you know, that I was buying off the stands way before I got in, you know, Eric Larson, I started seeing his work right before I got in. We kind of were hitting up the same publishers to do work. But Todd had been in the in, in, at DC Comics and Marvel Comics since like 1983, so that is a you know a good four years prior to me coming on the scene. So I I was just um, I was just uh, you know very very much um, it, it, you know anxious to learn as I always am. I, I just want to learn, and so so one time well so so this is all meant to uh, you know inform you that I was I was calling Todd a lot. You know, one time, phone rang. Todd politely picked up. <clears throat> I said, hey, Todd. Bud. <clears throat> oh, I haven't done Todd in a while, guys. Let me warm up. <clears throat> Let me give you a couple of butts. Bud. 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 Okay, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Bud. I said, Todd. He said, Bud. It was a little more serious. It was It was definitely lower register. Bud. It was a little, a little tired. It was tired. Bud, you... You call me more than my mother. You call me more than my mother. And I was like, oh, oh, put in my place. 
I was like, uh, 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 I'm sorry, can, can I just take a few minutes? Yeah, sure, bud. You, you call me more than my mom. And, and it was at that point, I think maybe I didn't call him for another two, three weeks after. Gave Todd a nice 21, 21 day break. Hence, fulfilling Patty Liefeld, my beautiful mothers, don't hang around each other too much. You'll get sick of each other. So, uh, you know, I think the Image Comics experiment was able to last for a good two and a half years before we all were starting to fray and get a little sick of each other and do and and, and where everything was bugging each other. I I was bugged by all of them. The what I saw is hypocrisy, um, laziness, stupidity. I just wanted out, and I and I got out, and it was great. And and I I will always be thankful for the time that I have spent personally and professionally with those guys. And mainly thankful because we changed the course of a mighty river. We changed distribution. We changed coloring, production values. We changed page rates. We changed creators' rights. It was a very exciting time. A very, very exciting time. And we could have only done it if we were united. If we had been united as one. I remember learning years years into it and Todd learned and, and I learned and we all were sharing the fact that uh you know that Marvel had flown to uh San Diego where Jim was located to convince him not to stay. I've told you. Uh they said we don't mind losing Todd and Rob. That it's like so the three million Spider Man and the five million comic book, I I, I maintain that X Force the other day I decided, and you can dispute it, but X-Force is like the number one best-selling book with characters you never heard of. Again, Spider-Man and X-Men were tried and true. X-Force, you look at that cover, those characters didn't exist nine months prior. That was just, it was riding the Rob Liefeld kind of excitement wave. And, and I was fortunate, but I put my work in. I put my hard, hard work in. Blood, sweat, tears. Um, to slightly pivot... Um, one of my one of my kids is uh, is is you know uh, up for some some different productions and and is talking about how he'll he'll be gone and away for several months and uh, you know my, my my wife when she was eighteen got a job to go shoot uh, with her sisters a Disney movie called Parent Trap Hawaiian Honeymoon the reason I'm telling you this is not to watch it it is to understand that she was gone for three months shooting you know, on the big, the main island in Hawaii. And she talks about how she got bored and lonely and they got on top, they got sick of each other, the three sisters, because they were definitely, having known them since I was 18 years old, um, they they were definitely used to going their own way, having their own space. And now they're all in the same hotel room, going to the same set, filming every day, but they were away from friends and family and on their own. It was a great Honestly, it turned out to be a great growing experience for all three of them. But, but my, both my wife and myself were telling my child that when when early in our career, that was her experience. And then for me, the the first you know fourteen issues of New Mutants, I said goodbye to all my friends. Like, did not formally, but I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't go hang out. I couldn't go to the um, late night restaurants. I had work to do, and and my career was everything to me. And advancing my career was everything to me. So I was pouring everything I had, the late nights, the 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 sole desk light over my board in my Brea studio. Marat had long gone home at five. Marat was very, you know, consistent in that he put in about a nine to five, nine to six 
um, gig with me, 10, 10 to 5. It was great. He was dedicated. It was great to have him all day, but I couldn't, you know, as much as I wanted him to hang around all the time, he had to go home. He had his own life. He's a teenager. Um, you know, I mean, he was probably 18 when I was, you know, 20, 21. And those times that I put in at the board were lonely. They're lonely times. That's why you have people on your Rolodex to call up and talk to. And guys like Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson and Jim Lee and Al Gordon were the guys, who, and Jim Valentino were the guys who's, you know, whose ears I would talk off as I was completing my pages. But I, what I wasn't doing was I wasn't hanging out and I wasn't seeing my friends because that would only get in the way of the goals that I needed to accomplish. And that's that early stage of your career when you're really learning your craft and 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 maybe you're you're really pushing forward. Maybe you have a breakthrough role and you get booked, you know, one, two, three, four gigs. You're 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 learning and that and that 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 wave that's carrying you on that success, whether you're a musician, an actor, a comic book artist, is gonna take you away from the people you love at that time. And you just hope that you know you'll be able to rejoin and smoothly transition back in. But the reason um you know that 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 work was done, and the and the the, the achievement on New Mutants and X Force was because of my dedication. Was those sixteen hour days, and literally they were sixteen hour days, writing, drawing, inking, it, it, having input on 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 the coloring, the production, the the marketing, and uh, Marvel was basically saying we don't care if this crazy Todd and crazy Rob go away. We want to keep you, and they had flown out. I believe it was Tom DeFalco, Carl Potts, Bob Harris, and uh, whoever the publisher of Image was at the time. He he was certainly a nice guy, but more of the ruthless businessman type. And it was as much to save face for Marvel as it was to prevent us from jamming together. Because if they could keep Jim at Marvel and not have him join up with Rob and Todd, then they have they have a piece. Uh, of their success that they can hold on to, that their best-selling X-Men artist is still with them. And even though the other two, even though now two and three are gone, we have number one, you know, however you want to look at it. The thing with Jim is he wasn't in any way a proficient or prolific creator of characters or ideas. He was just somebody who you really liked how he drew Magneto and Wolverine. Um, and and, and and that was enough for them. That was enough. Posters, images, look, it's a comic book business. Images matter. But character creation is a different weapon. It's a different, you know, muscle that you move. Now, I actually think by them, and I can only think this, I can only speculate. The guy who told us this, obviously, was Jim. We didn't hear this secondhand. Jim told us to our faces. And there was a little bit of a, of, of a, of a grin when he exp- expressed to us that, like, he mattered to them. They were ready to write us off, but but... But they wanted to keep him. And I'm glad we never knew about it. I'm glad it probably would have made me more resistant to him joining with us. And I think we've seen the corporate culture is something that Jim craves. Because if you blink and and you look back, I mean, he's been a corporate officer for 23 years. Much longer than he was the penciler of X-Men. And much longer than he was with Image Comics. And so, uh, you know, by Marvel trying to not allow him to be folded into our group. They could have severed the entire movement, but they didn't. And that's the great part. An image happened with all of us. And that is really the strength that we had in the numbers and where I believe we are like the 19, this book on 1974, Rock on the Water, is Image Comics in 1992. That is a ridiculously influential. When I see now characters, when you know, I, I see and meet the people who, you know, I've gone out, 
to lunch with Jeff John several times where he he actually showed myself, Robert Kirkman, Jeff Loeb. He had a folder. He opened up all the different Youngblood designs that he had sent in as part of our Build a Character contest. He wrote a Youngblood story. He wrote a, a, a 12-page Youngblood Photon story, the character of Photon. Jeff Jones was a big deal for a long time. And the fact that he was um, so inspired by what we did at Image Comics, what my books meant to him, was was a huge deal. It was, it was a big deal. I've met a lot of guys along the way who have talked to us about what those books meant. And as we are, you know, really closing in on that 30th year, um, I, 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 we're going to examine this a lot because that year and the, 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 the combination of all of us, you know, a couple years back, we got together at Emerald City, but Jim didn't show up, which is fine. It's his choice. I'm coming back to that because, again, it, it, it wasn't complete. Whether you like Jim, you don't like Jim, it wasn't complete. Had he been there, it would have been, you know, once in a lifetime. Now, I, I don't believe that's happening again. I, I truly don't. Um, I don't believe you will see us all on stage together ever again. It's getting weirder as we get older, as I think things do. Um, but that does not deny that the time that we spent together was not pure, total magic and it affected every aspect. I think it's affecting entertainment now. I mean, when I meet, as I did in the early 2000s, a couple of designers from Gears of War, and they tell me what a giant influence my work was on them. These are the guys that make the different characters in the game, the gameplay, the movement, and they tell me what a big influence not only my work was, but that Cable and Profit were. And it's I'm like, wow, I can't believe you guys are telling me this because I know you're telling me the truth because I've seen the work and the first thing I thought was these guys look like cable characters and shoulder pads and giant robo arms and the giant, unbelievably, you know, misproportionate style weaponry, guns, swords, knives. So what we did, when we did, mattered and really genuinely moved the needle and our books absolutely stuck the landing. Again, our books are still, you know, I put my 10 issues of Youngblood as some of the best work I've ever done. It was certainly the most inspired. It was my most exciting time to be creating comic books. And it's funny, I was putting up pages from Youngblood number two the other day on my group on Facebook for people to check out. And I was laughing because one guy was generous enough for a couple guys where, hey, we really enjoyed you writing this issue. You know, had if this was the Marvel method and I had not... Put the script there because Youngblood 2 is story, script, which is word balloons. I hung those word balloons. I gave that dialogue myself. Had that been in the Marvel method, someone else, that person would have a ownership on some level, have a percentage of profit, which is why I think it's a crock. Count me with Dave Michelini. It's a crock. Like had, had, had anybody in the office, had Eric Stevenson, which he did not, but at Eric Stevenson, scripted, you know, profit in Youngblood number two over my story in the Marvel method, he would be a, a creator of some sort. So I, I am really excited that on characters like Blood Wolf and characters like Prophet, I did I did everything. I did the script and the story, and I learned from that Marvel experience, which is why, again, Major X, a couple years ago, I said, I'm scripting all of it. There's no way I'm going to lose some sort of creator credit on this character because somebody else does the word balloons now after his initial appearance i'll always have a scripter over that stuff because the initial 
appearance is over and and that is that 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 is done and out of the way that yes the author establishment is finished um and 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 I was able to deliver the 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 story the script the art the whole thing so it's just funny but 1992 I suppose is the comic book version of Rock on the Water and it was also a Southern California except for Vancouver a Southern California kind of jamming session and whatever time Todd spent in California kind of contributes towards that but uh it really was very collaborative again I it it it, it was I was flipping through the Frank Miller written issue of Spawn where Todd had guest writers come in and develop ideas for him that he could use. Uh, Frank Miller's issue, Todd was running late on and he came to a meeting at Image Comics, which was um, uh, down the hall from my Extreme Studios and he handed pages out and there's a double pager. There's a double pager towards the end where there's all these different body parts and torsos and heads and I am 90% of that double pager. I said, look, I'll jam. And Todd was just so relieved as anyone would be in that situation. When you are trying to meet a deadline, you go to book out the door, all hands on deck. Okay, we've established how different studios did it, whether it was Neil's studio or how Jim's studio would do it with people helping out on figures and backgrounds and inks. This is, Todd was like, help me out, jam with me. And we grabbed pages and were help, happy to help and push that forward. Eric Larson inked two, three pages in Youngboy number one because I needed the help. Um, I needed to get that book out and I gave those pages to Eric and uh, I believe at the Oakland Comic Con and he mailed them back to me and and so so it really was that kind of spirit that we were discussing like with Rock on the Water and uh, so again 1992 was a special year we're going to keep moving deeper into that as, as this podcast moves on to wrap up what I was saying about Invincible um, Winter Soldier Falcon just real quick fun show I'm not trying to get ahead of it what I, what, what I love is that it is mining deeply into the Mark Grunewald. Did he do 100 issues of Cap? It feels like it. It was like almost a 10-year run. He did an ex, an outstanding run on Captain America that started in the mid-80s and went to the mid-90s. And Flag Smasher and Johnny Walker, you know, Super Patriot, U.S. Agent, Battlestar, all of this is a byproduct of Mark Grunewald's dedication to this character, his epic storytelling, his soap operatic elements that kept you hooked. They put that book... Uh, at, at two, two, you know, we did a podcast about how Marvel figured out that what's better than an X-Men spinoff is upping the circulation of X-Men, which they did. And you got X-Men bi-weekly, you know, for three to four months a year. They did that thing. during Grunewald's run. They did that to Captain America and they gave you bi-weekly cap and it was fantastic. The, the, the sweet spot for me of that run is when Kieran Dwyer, D. W-Y-E-R, and, and this is the weirdest thing. He is John Byrne's stepson. Not genetically connected, but relationally connected. Kieran Dwyer comes in and does this epic run. He is a great storyteller, a great cartoonist, a great artist. I always admired his work. I love everything that he's ever done. He is just a fantastic illustrator, comic book artist. He understands the language of comics, and I'm sure that at some point he studied something that his adopted father was doing when they shared a roof to adapt as well as he did at one point while he was doing it John Byrne gave an interview that it was it was really interesting that Karen was the same age he was when John did his run on Captain America so that, that there's great you know 
parallels there. But Karen Dwyer and then Ron Lim did this extended run under Mark Grunewald on Captain America. And again, all of these very exciting stories unfolded. If you can catch those stories, if you can read those stories, you will not regret it. They are fantastic. They are the basis with which you are seeing everything unfold. I'm not looking around any corners. I'm not looking into the future. I'm taking what I'm getting at any time from Cap Winter Soldier. WandaVision burned us, burned me bad. Troll bridge was lowered. Cross that bridge, regret it. With this, I'm just taking it as it is. And I highly recommend. Um, I love the adventures of Bucky and Falcon and, and everything that they're encountering. And I love that Bu you know Bucky is learning how to be the very best Bucky he can be now. Um, and, and, and all of the, the different elements that are coming together, whether it's Flag Smasher or the John Walker and the Battlestar situation, it's very exciting. Uh, definitely dig deep, deep into that Mark Grunewald Captain America run. You will not go wrong. Uh, Flag Smasher was a single character there. They're expanding that, making it an organization. It's very cool. They, they've done a twist on the name and turned her into the female um, antagonist that we saw in uh, episode two. Great stuff. Loving every Friday. Love the action adventure. Doesn't seem like it's trying to be more than what it is. It's a great action adventure superhero yarn, and I'm digging it. But Invincible. Let me tell you why I love Invincible. I did not like the comics of the early 2000s. I've never really made uh, any bones about that. It was a bunch of guys who wanted to be the next Aaron Sorkin. They all wanted to show you that they could also write great episodes of The West Wing. Or they wanted to show you that they could do dialogue on par with Tarantino. It was a, kind of this weird indie movement that made most Marvel comics, for me, unreadable. They were stagnant. They were lacking both imagination and movement. Most importantly, I would say they were lacking movement. Thank God John Romita Jr. was still doing two books a month for them because when he was doing The Hulk with Bruce Jones and when he did Spider-Man with J. Michael Straczynski, those were magnificent, fantastic. That J. Michael Straczynski run on Spider-Man is 100% unheralded. I've seen it kind of uh, looked down on in recent years, but me and my friends were digging it the most. It, it was a great twist on the Spider-Man origin. I hope to God that they don't ever completely abandon uh, the, the, the tenets of that storyline because it was cool. It was great. I know they, they pivoted back towards it into a multiverse uh, Olivier Coipel, Dan Slott uh, story like 2013-2014, but I, I just hope some of the tenets of that remain. But Ramita Jr. is going to give you a product that's rock'em sock'em that, that then invokes all of the great stuff of the Bronze Age that inspired the Image Age, okay? But Invincible comes out at a, at a right book, right place, right time. Who the hell is Robert Kirkman? Who the hell is Corey Walker? I never heard of these guys. And as I mentioned previous podcasts, they were very, extremely, um, highly executed works. Corey was, for someone I'd never heard of, was extremely hitting his marks like he was a veteran pro of, of, of a decade or more. And same with Robert. Who is this guy who can Chris Claremont, Chris out Chris Claremont, Chris Claremont on his best day? And the thing that, that about Invincible, it was imaginative. It was you know it, it took a familiar trope. It went completely in its own direction, but it was violent. It was action packed. It was mysterious. It, it was enticing. It came out on time. These guys hit their marks. When Corey could no longer do it, Ryan Otley stepped in and never looked back. And Invincible is a giant soap opera, one of the best premier comic book superheroes of the last 20 years. If it, Without Robert Kirkman and Mark Miller, the 2000s were lost for me. I just could not get into these verbose, um, multi-part talk, multi 
talk fests that Marvel Comics engaged in the most. That's because both Bill Jemis and Quesada believe that was their way to shed so much of the practices of 1992 in Image Comics. I mean, this 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 entire episode fits like a glove, okay? What we did became resented because people actually would say they didn't respect what we were doing. They didn't respect the kind of comics we were doing. Um, I don't know how you can not look at every single issue that Eric Larson did of Savage Dragon and think they were spectacular. I will stand by all 10 issues of my original Youngblood run as some of the be- and and Youngblood Strike File. So 13 issues, some of the best material I've ever done, period. Some of Todd's best work were those first few issues of, of, of Todd before, of, of Spawn before he gave over the artistic chores. Mark's work's inspired. We were knocking it out of the park. We were having the very best time. Stephen Platt came over and did some epic work from Pro- in Profit that is still rocking people um, to the back of, of their comic collections, of their man caves, 25 years later. This, we were flexing and, and people couldn't keep up with us because we had honed our strengths and our skills. And we were giving them to you in the best possible way. It was like the best, it was like if a musician with the best producer, the best sound equipment, the best mixing, the, I mean, the, the best pressing of the album, the vinyl. I mean, that is what the early Image Comics were. And, and Marvel wanted to get a, as far away from that as they possibly could and do what I would say is these, this intelligent approach, this, this talky approach. And, and again, Mark Millar was having none of it, and Robert Kirkman was having none of it over at Image Comics. Mark's books were action-packed, violent, um, edgy, uh, uh, kind of they, 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 they were anything but safe. And Robert's Invincible was mysterious, cliffhanger after cliffhanger, really deep on the characterization. You really cared about Mark and what was going on with his family, and the cartoon really ups the timeline on some of the reveals and it's better for it. I was blown away. But I was blown away because I loved Invincible. And I loved it going in and I and I and I have enough of a base knowledge that I thought, well, I'm gonna track this okay. And then they totally turned me upside down. And in the first episode, the last 10 minutes, last five minutes is the best fi- last five minutes of any show I've seen, cartoon or otherwise, in the last several years. And you should be watching Invincible. It is fantastic. It is epic. It is big in scope. It is bloody and violent and action-packed. And it's why I love the comic book. The comic book remembered what made great comics. Robert Kirkman will tell you he was an a- he was born in the age of image. He drove to see the image creators. He bought those works. He bought that art. He bought into the vision, hook, line, and sinker. It is so just awesome that he became a partner and, and is as influential um, in the world of comic books and specifically of Image Comics as he is. The Invincible comic, I took out my slipcase, hardcover editions, my oversized ones this weekend. I was just drinking them in. I, it's so great to see how much they've already advanced. That comic can be your guide. It can definitely be your guide. Buy the digital downloads, the trades, the hardcovers, whatever you can get your hands on with Invincible. I, I even got my cool toys out that they did in recent years. The Invincible action figures. There's one just covered in blood and guts. They're great. I, I would. I just cannot highly recommend the Invincible comic book because 
it was always a bit of the unexpected. It was always executed at the top level. I could not believe not only the work of Corey Walker, but Ryan Otley. They were so well-formed at such a young age. Uh, great figure work. Uh, dynamics were, were a tenet of both of these men's work. And obviously, Robert, as he was guiding the entire saga, knew exactly what he was doing at every certain point with these characters and all of the uh, paces, and some of them are painful, that he puts them through. So I cannot recommend more highly Comic Book Reading Corner, Invincible, and Mark Grunewald's entire Captain America run, which you can get from Marvel in trade, hardcover, all this stuff. Um, and, and again, Mark Grunewald, he understood how to throw a punch, how to throw a kick, comics that moved. He was brought into the Jim Shooter tutelage that we utilized an image of at least X amount of pages of action in every issue, 10, 11 pages of action in every single issue. You know, an introduction where you got to know the character and the powers, putting you through the power, the, the paces with the action, and on a cliffhanger. These are great comics. You should seek them out. Captain America, Invincible, what a fun time. I love the comic books. I love talking about this. I do believe 1992 was comic books rock on the water, and there is so much more to come. Um, uh, you, you have no idea what's coming in regards to to seeing Image Comics characters on screen, 1992 will be reflected very soon on screen in the same way that 1961 1964 were portrayed in the mid-2000s. Just take some time. Just take some time to get it right and, and to get it up and running, and I'm sure there is more fruit uh, to come off that tree that we planted in 1992. Thank you for listening to my podcast, for following, around, following along, for listening to me. Yes, I sometimes slur my words. I do it specifically for you. Thanks for taking this journey with me. Uh, this was rich. This was a good one. A lot of topics. I, 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 uh, <laughs> I'm happy and pleased that I stayed the course. If you want to time travel with me on Saturdays, let me know which cowboy shows you're watching on Saturdays and Sundays on the weekends. Cause, uh, I'll be doing it again every weekend until I croak or they pull the plug on those channels. What's they're, what's they're not going to? That's how long Westerns have been around. I expect comic books, comic book superheroes to follow the same course. I am on social media at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. I have a blue check there. Do not accept messages. My aunt called up my wife Sunday and said, Rob's been hacked. Look at this message I got. It wasn't from me. It was a guy named Liefeld Rob. That was his, but he stole my picture and he made himself look like me, but it was not me because I have that blue check and my name is Rob Liefeld, not Liefeld Rob. Again, I mention this to keep you away from this because I experience it. There are always people trying to crib us. Um, so on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld with the blue check mark. Don't accept any sub substitutes. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld because Rob Liefeld got squatted the day Twitter launched. At Robert Liefeld, another blue check mark. Do not accept the phony balonies, and there's a couple of them. And even though they're funny, they're not me. Um, so that's who I am on Instagram and Twitter. I am all over Facebook. I am all over social media. I love talking to you guys. I love hanging out. Thank you for listening. Thanks for giving your time. Subscribe, recommend, get this out there. Help me to expand my crazy, wacky world. Uh, I, I love doing this with you guys. Um, uh, this, this crazy show born of a pandemic and isolation has turned out to be something of... Uh, a real salvation for me, and I and I hope you appreciate it. And I thank you for all the times you guys have expressed your um your support for the show. Thank you. You guys know the drill. You are going to stay safe. You're going to take care of yourself, and we will talk again real soon.